Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. My name is Ben Davison. I am your host. And yes, this is the first weekend wrap we've had in a few weeks. It is Sunday, the 19th of November in the year 2023. Christmas is just around the corner, but there is still so much going on and still so much to get done before the jolly fat man comes down the chimney. Of course, there's lots of economic news, lots of political news, and lots of controversy for us to get into right here in Australia and indeed in our region. The first piece of news I want to talk about is the massive, massive share buybacks that are happening in Australia's corporate sector. So the big four banks between them have announced $6 billion in share buybacks. There are 10 buybacks going on in major Australian companies just this year. Uh, This includes the Macquarie Group, Qantas, and Corporate Travel Management. Now, if you haven't heard of Corporate Travel Management, it's an interesting company to look into because you would think that what they do, and a lot of what they do, is help corporations uh, make travel plans. But of course, what they also do is they have a contract with the UK government worth $3 billion to manage a barge used to house asylum seekers. If you haven't been up to date with this information and this news so far, the UK has tried to adopt uh, the coalition's uh, turn back the boats border policy, the uh, inhumane approach to asylum seekers uh, that was begun under John Howard, so much so that they have set up a barge offshore of the UK to place asylum seekers in, and it's actually managed by this Australian company called Corporate uh, Travel Management. They are buying back shares. Now, how can companies do this? Qantas is doing it as well, obviously. Uh, There's supermarkets uh, talking of doing it as well. Now, what is a share buyback? Essentially, share buybacks were, until the 80s and the advent of neoliberalism, considered a form of stock price manipulation. It was considered and was indeed illegal. Now, this changed through a series of regulatory uh, changes that came about with the loosening of capital markets because the argument was that sometimes corporations would have more money than they needed and that they had issued more shares because share issuances are effectively how companies raise money by saying you own a piece of the company, you've paid for that, and in exchange for that, we'll pay you dividends. The idea behind a share buyback is to say the company now has so much money, it's going to buy back some of the shares from its shareholders, and we're prepared to do that at this time because we believe the market is underpricing our shares. So if we buy them back from you, even at a premium, we still think that's good value for the company and for shareholders as a whole. Now, that all sounds nice and dandy in a microeconomic textbook. What does it really mean? It means that these corporations have raked in billions of dollars in additional profits. They don't have a pipeline of innovative products or services 
in which to invest. And effectively, they are giving their executives and their biggest shareholders a bonus. In this case, billions of dollars worth of a bonus. It's interesting to point out at the same time as they're doing this, they're also trying to drive down wages in their sectors. We've seen some of these banks make massive profit announcements at the same time as talking about offshoring thousands of jobs or eliminating thousands of jobs. This is one of the key reasons you need to be a union member. Capital and management are absolutely organised when it comes to these things. You need to be organised with your workmates. So go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, join your union, because these companies are doing this. They are doing this right now, and it is perfectly legal. The laws changed 30, 40 years ago. It was no longer considered to be stock price manipulation, but rather a way of returning capital to investors. Now, the fact that it's happening at the same time as Australia and other parts of the Western world in particular are supposedly suffering under an inflation crisis, that there is a cost of living crisis, makes you question how this can be possible. And it's possible because these companies are profiteering and have been profiteering for the last few years. They have overcharged people. They have reaped in profits that they have not really earned. The Reserve Bank has helped the big four banks and the Macquarie Group to make billions of extra dollars from ordinary everyday people. Most people will not have direct access to shares in these companies. They will get no immediate benefit from these share buybacks. Who will get a benefit? Absolutely everybody who is on the boards of those companies, who is an executive in those companies, and of course, who owns large portfolios of shares in those companies. So while ordinary everyday people are paying more for mortgages, banking services, at the supermarket, for flights, for travel, to see family, to do the work they need for their small business, those companies are in fact so cash rich, they're able to give additional cash back to their investors. There is a great example of this. Qantas usually makes about 20% return on invested capital. Now, invested capital generally measures how well a company generates profit. So a 20% return is pretty good. Qantas generally has a pretty good return. That has increased to 103.6%. 103.6%. That is more than five times its usual return on invested capital. So some of that money is going to go back to shareholders. Some of it will stay with the company and a lot of it will go to executives, as we've already seen. This is at the same time Qantas has been found guilty yet again for the second time in a month, found to have breached 
the law when it comes to its workers. Theo, who was a health and safety rep, was dismissed during the pandemic for refusing an unsafe direction. Courts have now found that Theo was absolutely within his rights and that Qantas was at fault. They did not provide a safe working environment and Theo did the right thing. Another reason to stand in your union. Theo was backed 100% by the trade union movement and even though it has taken years for that to be resolved because Qantas fought it every inch of the way, he won. So despite the fact that these regulatory These charges have been laid against Qantas. They've been found guilty. They unlawfully sacked workers. They've unlawfully sacked a health and safety rep. They are making 106% return on capital. This begs the question, what can we do about it? Well, there's a number of things. One of the ways to fight inflation is to increase taxes. I saw an interesting piece in The Australian talking about the need to to fight inflation by cutting taxes, which is actually the direct opposite of what you would want to do. And these corporations are clearly, clearly have more cash than they know what to do with. Another way to fight inflation is to distribute this wealth to the workers who've helped generate it. Distribute the wealth to the workers who've helped generate it. We know that wages are lagging behind inflation. There is no wage-driven inflation in this country. The inflation in this country is driven by these profiteering corporations. And do we know this example of share buybacks is just another, another proof point that they have indeed been profiteering. And, you know, there's so much we could do with that money. Instead of it going to the Commonwealth and the benefit of all, it will go into offshore accounts, it'll go into private equity funds, it'll go into making more money for people who already have more money than whole neighbourhoods of some of our largest cities and towns. When in reality, what we need is more investment in our cities and towns. We need more investment in our infrastructure, in our health system, in our education system. And today, the Australian Education Union, the AEU, has put out a report that shows just how egregious the gap has become when it comes to public education. So remember the number I said before, that there was going to be $6 billion in share buybacks. $6 billion in share buybacks just from banks. That's just from the banks. That's not every share buyback in the country, just from the banks. Well, guess how much our public schools are underfunded by? If you guessed $6 billion, you're not far wrong because the number is somewhere between $6.2 and $6.5 billion depending on the margins at the edges. 6.2 to 6.5 billion underfunded in our public schooling system. Same time, the banks giving $6 billion to shareholders. When governments say things like we can't afford to do this, 
they need to look more broadly. If the big four banks can afford $6 billion as a share buyback, literally just handing money out, surely, surely the Commonwealth can find $6 billion to invest to lift our public schools, not to the highest possible funding standard, not to what would be a world-class level, but to the minimum standard. To the minimum standard, 1.3% of our public schools are funded to the minimum standard. 1.3%. That $6 billion could be used to make sure every public school was funded to the minimum standard. And not only that, fully funding our public schools is an investment that returns somewhere between two and four times the money you put in. So $6 billion could become $12 billion. Or or it could become $24 billion. That's the kind of nation building we need to see. And the AU report today not only highlights the need in public schools and the benefit to all of us if that investment is made, it highlights the fact that 98% of private schools are already resourced and funded to that minimum level. In fact, many of them are overfunded to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Over the next five years, private schools will be funded above the minimum standard by the Commonwealth to the tune of $3 billion. So on one hand, we've got major corporations doing multi-billion dollar share buybacks, private schools getting billions of dollars more than they need to have the minimum standards, and we've got public education underfunded by $6 billion. And some of this is so very, very wrong. You might have seen in the news this week that a grandfather drove his car through the glass enclosure of an indoor pool at a private school and into the water. That particular private school will be overfunded by the federal government to the tune of $19.1 million over the next five years. That one school will get nearly $20 million more. That's almost $4 million a year more than it needs to meet the minimum funding requirements. That's before any of the donor money. That's before any of the additional funding that it gets from wealthy families, from benefactors, from various sponsorships that many private schools now enter into as well. And there's a whole list. The AAU has a whole list of these. You need to check out foreverychild.au to see the campaign that they're running because it is really drawing attention to the fact that the federal government has a decision to make. We've got profiteering corporations. 
They're doing work there to close the loopholes. So important. Close the loopholes to the labor hire workers, so the casuals, so the workers who are on platforms can get access to the $9 billion in wages that are not being paid, that that are propping up those share buybacks. That's part of it, right? The overcharging is part of it. The undercutting of minimum wages and standards is part of it. Over here, we've got this legacy of the Howard, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison era where private schools are overfunded. They are overfunded in terms of contribution from the public purse. And increasingly, the idea, remember the idea behind these things, the idea behind share buybacks, money the company didn't need, would give back to investors who would invest in other things that would be more productive. That's not what happens. It's just profiteering. The idea behind the Commonwealth supporting private schools was always that it would lower fees. It would give middle-class people more access to private schooling. It would give private schools the ability to offer more scholarships. Do they offer scholarships? Yes, they do. Are they often to the very best sports players in that town? Yes, they are. Does it fundamentally relieve, quote-unquote, the burden on public education? Of course it doesn't. We can see that through the burnout rates, through the workload rates, that teachers are reporting and families are reporting and communities are reporting every single day. The justifications for these sorts of policy decisions have proven to be false. New policy decisions are needed to replace them. And the policy decision to fully fund public education is absolutely rock solid based on empirical evidence. We can see it around the world. You don't have to be the richest country to see high levels of productivity, high standards of living, where countries have invested in public education from early childhood to primary to secondary to tertiary and vocational. Those investments lead to high prosperity, higher rates of happiness, greater social harmony, where we have divided systems, where we entrench a class system through our education, then we see greater division. One need only look at the US and UK for just how divisive that can be. And in those two examples, they barely get any government funding for private schooling. So it's important that we fully fund public schools. Remember, check out the campaign. They're doing lots of activity. There's road trips going on. Big shout out to everyone who's been involved right around the country. It's been so good to see teachers, community members standing up saying, it's time our public schools, public education was fully funded. Our teachers are properly supported. Our students are properly supported. Good economic policy. You know, you might say, Ben, why are we talking about share buybacks at the same time we're talking about education policy? Because these are policy decisions. None of these things are set in stone. Companies make share buybacks because they can. For a long time, they couldn't. They couldn't. Companies 
underpay workers because they can. They create labour hire schemes where they fully own the company and put people on different wages than they should be under, under a collective agreement, because they can. So you make a policy decision to close the loopholes and you should be supporting those campaigns. You should be contacting David Pocock, Jackie Lambie, Tammy Tyrell, making sure they understand that these companies are making massive profits, billions of dollars that are being taken out of workers' pockets. The delay in that bill alone is said to cost gig workers over $110 million between this week and February when the Senate report will be handed down. That assumes it's passed in February. These things are connected. You then look at what's happening in education, $6 billion of underfunded. That's just the share buybacks that the big banks have made. A stronger tax system. Now, banks in this country don't have a lot of ways of minimising tax. Qantas does. Corporate travel management does. Supermarkets have. The resources sector have. There is billions of dollars that should be going into the Commonwealth coffers to pay for the education system that we need that isn't. There's billions of dollars that should be in the pockets of everyday working people that isn't. Now, these are policy decisions, most of which have been inherited, most of which the Labor government is trying to do something about. And of course, it's frustrating that they can't just wave a magic wand and make it happen. But it's why we have to support campaigns. It's why we have to build public momentum to support those policies being changed. There are people in the Labor government who do want to fully fund public schools. We need to build a majority of support. That's what the AEU is doing. Just like in the economic space, we need to build majority support. We need to make sure that our MPs understand that support and we need to change the economic settings, close the loopholes, change the tax system, make sure everyone pays their fair share and gets paid their fair share. That's a fair go. That's the Australian way. And just briefly, I want to talk about the fair go and the Australian way because there's been a lot of chatter this week. Van and I talked a little bit about what happened with the High Court decision and the release of people from permanent detention. There's been a lot of chatter about Anthony Albanese going to APEC Uh, and meeting with our regional neighbours instead of, quote, staying home and dealing with this crisis. Now, first of all, it wasn't a crisis. It's not a crisis. There are a small number of people who have pled guilty to or been found guilty of some pretty horrible crimes. No question about that. They are under surveillance. New visa arrangements have been put in place. There is little to no threat to the Australian people any more than there would be from any person, right? Unfortunately, murders, assaults, those sorts of things do happen, the vast majority of them, 
are not perpetrated by asylum seekers or people seeking asylum, right? That's not, uh, that's just the reality of the situation. But of course, Peter Dutton's party exists on the premise of existential threat. And Van and I have talked about this before. We talked about it after the last federal election that the Liberal Party and the coalition failed to grasp climate change as the existential threat and instead grasped migration. And we're seeing it ramp up. We're seeing it play out more and more. Migrants are the problem. Migrants and immigration is the problem. Quite simply, that is xenophobic and an attempt to create an external threat to justify the existence of the Tory parties who don't want to deal with the corporate greed, the profiteering, the underpayment of workers, the education system that needs to be repaired and reinvested in. They don't want to do any of that. They had 10 years in government. They didn't do any of that. What they do is pretend that somehow or another, 15 or 20 people are the greatest threat to the 28 million of the rest of us that has ever existed in the history of the Commonwealth. And that because of that, Anthony Albanese should disconnect Australia from the world. Now, Anthony Albanese going to APEC is important because Australia is a trading nation. We are a nation of migrants. With the exception of our First Nations people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, we are all migrants here, whether we're second, third, first, fifth generation. Australia is one of the greatest multicultural success stories in the world. Are there problems? Yes, of course there are. Are there tensions? Yes, of course there are. But we are not riven by civil strife. We have a functioning democracy. We have people of different faiths, different cultural backgrounds, different nationalities from when they arrived or their parents when they arrived in our parliaments, in our civil service. The promise of Australia is that it will give you a fair go. The external threat to Australia is not migration. It is climate change. It is becoming isolationist. Do we need greater sovereign capacity? Yes, we saw that in the pandemic. All countries need greater sovereign capacity. The neoliberal lie that we can deliver things just in time from one side of the world to the other in order to keep the economy flowing without having to pay workers what they're worth, without having to calculate the external costs of carbon or the transportation costs because we'll underpay people, that lie has been debunked. But we still do need to trade with our neighbours. We need a good relationship, good relationships with Indonesia, good relationships with India, good relationships with Japan, and, yes, good relationships with China and New Zealand and America and Europe. Now, some of those will result in trade deals. I don't call them free trade deals because they're very rarely free. Some of them will result in defence pacts. As I understand it, a defence pact with Indonesia is being negotiated with Richard Marles. And that's a good thing. Indonesia is our largest neighbour. 
and it is the largest democratic majority Islamic country in the world. 300 million people live in Indonesia. Such an opportunity to work collaboratively in our mutual national interests. The idea that Anthony Albanese should somehow or another adopt the Morrison era of cutting ourselves off from the world, pretending that we just sell people the things we dig out of the ground without any regard for the relationship is frankly backwards looking. It's not future facing. Our relationships in this region are vital. There are family connections now in almost every community to almost every part of the globe. And that's a good thing. The multicultural story of Australia is still being written. And while Peter Dutton wants to whip up division and fear and pretend that the great external threat to the Commonwealth of this nation is somehow or another people who want to come here and build prosperous lives for themselves, for their families, for their communities. We have to remember he's doing that because his party has always needed an existential external threat. Whether it was communism in the 50s and 60s, whether it was terrorism in the 90s and noughties. The failure to realise the true existential threat that is climate change, that is inequality, that is internal division brought about by profiteering corporations, underinvestment in education, and resolving those problems means that now they're grasping at straws. And they hope, they hope that we'll turn on each other and the newest Australians so that they can sit in the ministries and enjoy slightly more comfortable political careers. Quite frankly, I hope they fail. And if you're listening to this podcast, I know that you have the wisdom to see through it. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, write a review on Apple Podcasts, talk to your friends about it. Don't forget to join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow. And don't forget to get involved in the foreverychild.au campaign. Less than less than 2% of our public schools meet minimum funding requirements. 98% of our private schools do. That number, that number seems bizarre to me. Absolutely bizarre. Should be a national scandal. And you know what? It's not even that much money. It's less money than corporations have spent just this year on buying back shares, on buying back shares. Get involved and remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.